For everyone else, while they are exiting, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 21. And we're just going to read two verses. Matthew 24, starting in verse 21. Verse 21 says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. You may be seated. Two weeks ago, I stood before you and talked on the topic of call to watch. We went through Matthew 24 pretty extensively and we looked at some other passages of where Jesus directly instructs us that we are to be watching for his return, that we are to call to be prepared to study, to show ourselves approve. Tonight I want to expand on that a little bit. Matthew 24, 15, Mark 13, 14, Revelation 13, 18. All three of these passage, passages directly tell us, let him that readeth understand. God doesn't just want you to read his word. He wants you to understand his word. And I find it interesting that in all three of these verses and there's other verses that say the same thing without using that exact wordage but I just referenced those three that in each of these three verses the direct context of what is being said here let him that readeth understand is speaking directly about revealing the antichrist and the tribulation period to come Whenever the, the, the words are written here in parentheses of, of, of let him that heareth understand, let uh, him that readeth understand, that kind of thing, it's, it's bringing emphasis to what is being discussed to let you know that this is important. Obviously all of the word of God is important, but there's something very specific that it is we are supposed to be understanding and, and watching for and looking for when these passages reference us being uh, uh, able to understand. Now, I got into church at the age of 14, and by the time I turned 15, I be became interested in prophecy. And, and I'm going to tell a little bit of my story. Many of you have heard many times. I won't belabor the point, but I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. I became very interested in, in, in prophecy, specifically prophecies concerning the return of Jesus. I mean, after all, that is what we look forward to. That is the hope that we have in Christ, that this isn't it, that this earth and all the stuff going on isn't the prize. It isn't what we are looking forward to, but we are looking for the return of our king. In my senior year in high school, I was uh, studying and looking at this material. I ended up teaching a Bible study about end time to 13 of my classmates, many of which ended up getting baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost. But you see, there was a problem. Because my biblical understanding of these prophecies was based solely on what my pastor, my youth pastor, and my mom had told me growing up. It's a lot like the, uh, the story you may have heard before about a, a mom and daughter who were preparing uh, Easter, the Easter ham. And the, the mom cuts off both ends of the ham. And the daughter asks the mom, why did you cut both ends off the ham? And the mom says, well, you know, I don't really know. My mom always cut both ends off the ham. And... 
I just started to do that too. So the mom called her mom and said, hey, why did you cut both ends off the ham? And that mom said, you know what, I, I don't really know. I just I always saw my mom do that and thought that's what was supposed to be done. Eventually, they talked to the great-grandmother here, and the great-grandmother's like, my, my pan wasn't big enough for the whole ham. So I had no choice but to cut the ends off. And that's a funny story, but the truth is, is that sometimes we are guilty of having a biblical outlook on things that's based more on tradition, more on what we hear from others, than it actually is rooted in what the verses actually say. And it's kind of a scary thought, really. It's kind of a scary place because we are putting so much faith and emphasis on what we believe, but if what we believe is not actually rooted in the Word of God, then we're believing in vain. We're believing in error. And that, that's a scary place to be. As many of you know, in 2005, I first came up here to Nebraska, and I, I met Jimmy Tony, who was pastoring this church at that time, and my whole world kind of turned upside down when he challenged me with one simple verse. He didn't give me a long speech, long sermon about it. He literally just read one verse to me. And he said, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And he simply looked at me and said, when is the last trump? And I realized at that point, for all the teaching I've done, I really didn't really know all that much. I, I was still pretty clueless as to what the Bible said and referenced and meant when talking about end time, so of course I went home, I've told you the story before, I went home, locked myself away in, a, in my study for like three days and read and read and read and read and read and prayed and read. And came out of that room realizing, wow, there is no way that you can scripturally support the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. You can't. You cannot read the words of God and believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. As I began the, the process of discovering what this all meant, I became curious as to what else... I believed that wasn't actually true. I began to study on topics such as the great tribulation, the rapture, the seals, the trumpets, the vials, and many end time, my, my end time knowledge would grow to the place that I began teaching Bible studies everywhere I could about the topic. And while I can't tell you the exact number of people I've taught a Bible study to about this subject, I can tell you with a certainty it is well over 150 people. I don't know exactly how many. I know it's been a lot, at least a lot by my standards. I guess by some that may not be a lot, but by my standards, that's a lot. But in all of that time, I must also say that unfortunately, I have, there's one topic that I have overlooked. One topic that both for myself, my family, and the people of Christ, an area that I've overlooked. And tonight I want to begin the process of hopefully trying to rectify this. See, I believe that God has more in store for his church than barely hanging on or hiding in some bunker during the great tribulation. I believe with all my heart that we are called to revival, not survival. Now, this message is not a, a, an attempt to, to look down on anyone who who has extra food or water or who's done things to prepare themselves for just natural disasters. All, that's, that's not the point of this message. But what I do want to address in this message, and if it gets pointed at times, know that it first was directly pointed at me before anyone else. 
Because what I realize is that in all of my studying and all of my teaching about end time and specifically about the great tribulation and the rapture, I have never taken the time to say what does it mean or what is required to be prepared to thrive in the great tribulation. You've heard me and Pastor Powell quote many, many, many times, Daniel 11, 32, and 33. We talk about that during that time we'd be strong and do exploits and that uh, they that understand will, will teach many. We, we've all heard uh, the prophecies about the latter rain. We've all heard about revivals that will take place that, that though there will be many to fall away, there will also be many to come to Christ during this period. But church, I have to tell you that how can we be participants in a great revival if we don't even know what's going to happen or how to go through it, how to be prepared to go through this time. Now a question you may ask, because it's one that I definitely ask myself is, how can you prepare for something that has never occurred before? Right? We open to Matthew 24, 21 and 22, and it says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of this world, or to this time, no, nor ever shall be. The passage here tells us that this period of time is going to be so unique that it has never happened before, and it will never happen again. So how do you prepare for something that you have no precedent in? It hasn't happened before. So how do you prepare for something like that? And I will admit that, that I have fallen prey to the same trap that much of the church has fallen into throughout history. You read the above verses and think, well, that's going to be something. And then we go on about our lives, never really thinking or giving any real thought as to what it's meaning there. And I'll stop saying just we, but I have been guilty of reading about the great tribulation, but then thinking... Well, I'll worry about that when it gets here. I'll worry about that when, when it comes and just I'll just trust Jesus and, you know, it'll, it'll be all okay. But not only is this not a biblical approach, it's actually a very dangerous attitude to have. If you think that you can bury your head in the sand and just hope that you can skate through three and a half years of tribulation, you are setting yourself up. For a horrible tragedy. Two weeks ago when I was talking about being called to watch. I read a small excerpt from a book written by Corey Ten Boom. And I think it's worth repeating. So bear with me if you've heard me say this. It's worth repeating. Corey Ten Boom as hopefully we all know at this point. Was a, was a Christian who lived in Europe during World War II. She was someone who her and her family had, had sought to protect uh, Jews escaping the Nazis. And ended up in a concentration camp herself for her family's crimes against the, the Nazis. And in that book she says this, I have been in countries where the saints are already suffering terrible persecution. There are some among us teaching that there will be no tribulation, that the Christians will be able to escape all of this. These are the false teachers that Jesus was warning us to expect in the latter day. Most of them have little knowledge of what is already going on across the world. Later in the book she says, In China the Christians were told, Don't worry, before the tribulation comes, you will be translated, raptured. Then came a terrible persecution. Millions of Christians were tortured to death. 
Later, I heard a bishop from China say, sadly, we have failed. We should have made the people strong for persecution. How to be strong and stand in times of persecution. Rather than telling them that Jesus would come first and that they could escape all trials and tribulation. Let us not be guilty of reading about the great tribulation, but doing nothing to actually prepare for it. Let us tell the people how to be strong in times of persecution. But again, this brings me back to my, my question. How do we prepare for something that has never occurred before? And I think to really even begin to wrap your mind around this, we need to go back to Matthew 24 and look at verse 21 and 22 and really try to understand what is being said here. Let's start first by looking at verse 22, Matthew 24, 22, which we said, um, and except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. When you read the first part of this verse, 22 indicates that if this tribulation period were left unchecked, no one would survive. No one. But notice what the second part of the verse states. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Shall be shortened. Some have read this verse to simply mean that God is going to alter the length of the day. But when you read it in its full context... What it is really saying is that this time period is so bad, and in fact, if it was simply you versus the enemy, you wouldn't make it. I wouldn't make it. But God. God knows exactly what his people need. He knows exactly when his people need it. And he knows exactly what we can, what we can stand. And he is ready and able and willing to deliver on the promises he has made to his people. Verse 22 should give you hope. It should give you hope that God already knows what tribulations lay in store for you as an individual and for the church at large. God already knows and he's already made a plan and a purpose for his people despite tribulation. Now we have to believe this. To our very core, we must know that our God is in control. He is never caught by surprise. There is no situation too big. There is no devil bad enough. There is no tribulation too great that our God is not in complete control. Now, I don't know if I can really articulate the importance of this principle in the way that I feel it. You must be completely sold out to the fact that God is all-powerful. We say this phrase, God is omnipotent. We say that God is all-powerful, but do we really, truly, fully believe that in our spirits? We may look at the chaos going on around us and start wringing our hands and wondering how are we going to get through this. We cannot even begin to comprehend how to overcome the mountain in front of us. But for God, it is as easy as a spoken word. This isn't some superhero movie where Jesus just barely manages to pull through a victory at the last minute. God has all power. 
Why am I harping on this? Because if you do not truly believe this with every ounce of your fiber, how can you trust God in the middle of this never-before-seen tribulation? If you do not truly believe that God is the one in control and that God has all power, and now you are in the midst of a tribulation that not only have you never seen, but the world has never seen, how will you, how will I be able to trust God through this time frame? The truth is, is that many will not. Now let's look at verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no nor shall ever be. As I read this verse in preparation for tonight, I probably reread it at least 50 times. And each, each time I read it, I put emphasis on different parts of the verse, trying to really like pull it apart in my mind to, to try to understand what, what's really being said here. So I, I said things like, for then shall be great tribulation. Okay, God seems to be cluing us into a specific time frame, letting us know very specifically when this is happening. Okay, okay. For then shall be great tribulation. All right, God's, God's trying to tell us that, that it's important, that it's a great tribulation. And, and on and on, I kept reading through the verse over and over, trying to really wrap my mind around it. But, you know, as I did this, over and over, something kind of finally clicked in my mind. See, there's a tribulation that is so unique that it has never happened prior to this, never will happen after this. As I began to think about times of great tribulation throughout our history, my mind went back to the Black Death or the bubonic plague, killed upwards of some estimates have it as high as 200 million people. The death was excruciatingly painful. People would get boils and it would take days for these individuals to die. World War I saw the death of more than 20 million men, women, and children. It was in this war that chemical weapons were first used on a large scale that caused people to literally suffocate to death. It was during this war that soldiers were buried under mounds of dirt in the trenches to the point that they got stuck there and could not get out and ended up suffocating because of the mud that came over them. World War II saw the systematic murder of more than 6 million Jews, and that doesn't even count all the other people that were also executed and punished by the Nazis. I could recount to you the horrors that happened in the concentration camps of Jews that were for forced to pull gold teeth from the mouth of their dead relatives or the gas chambers. But I hope that many of us have a fairly good idea of how horrific this time frame was. And I could go on and on throughout history talking about all of this. Where unimaginable horrors have occurred. And yet Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, 21 that this tribulation was so unique that it never occurred before and it will never occur again. As far as I can tell, dead is dead. And what I mean by that is this, that the, the distinction between all of these tro tro atrocities throughout history and this great tribulation doesn't seem to be a matter of how many people are killed or how bad people are tortured because we can look throughout our world even today and see the torture going on for Christians, for believers, for other people as well. No, there has to be something else, something else that, that sets this time frame apart other than just the atrocities. 
Now, if you'll read from Genesis to Revelation, you will find a repeating theme of man thinking they know better than God. We start all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Eve. God created a literal paradise on earth, a place where everything man could ever need was provided. But despite this literal paradise, Eve decided she would, be the, she would believe the serpent over God, that she knew better than God. Because of this, we know that sin then entered into the earth. What does God do in this situation? He allows man to be separated from his presence. And it doesn't take very long for all things to go horribly wrong and for God to pronounce judgment on the earth, to flood the earth. But despite this, God was still in control. And he speaks directly to people like Noah to intervene. And he calls Noah to build an ark. This theme continues on throughout the Old Testament. God tells Israel that he is the only sovereign king. He alone sits on the throne of power and authority. He's the one who provides victory for his people. Yet despite this, what do the Jews do? They demand to have an earthly king like the other nations. Let us have an earthly king to protect us. God warns them and warns them. They still demand. So what does God do? He says, okay, here you go. You ask for an earthly king, here you go. They get Saul. Starts out okay. Goes sideways pretty fast. If you look throughout the history of all the kings that, that served over Israel, the overwhelming majority of them were horrible. Did very bad things. Even the good ones, like David, who was, is called a man after God's own heart, had his own fair share of mistakes and things that he did wrong. And we see this play out time after time where God tells his people how to do something, how to, to win, how to have victory, and yet they continue to turn within themselves or to other earthly leaders and countries for their protection and ignore God altogether. And each time God intervenes and pleads for the people, and at the end of the day, though, he says, okay, I'm going to step back. I'll allow this to happen. But why does God do this? We actually find the answer very easily in, in Exodus chapter 7. I'm not going to read it right now, but in Exodus 7, when God tells um, uh, Moses to go to Pharaoh, he warns Moses ahead of time that Pharaoh's not going to listen. But he says, I'm going to prove to him and to my people that I am in charge. He allows this time frame where he says, okay, I'll step back and let you do it so that you can learn that you aren't God and you can't do it on your own. And then he's always calling his people back. What does this have to do with the Great Tribulation period? The Great Tribulation is the culmination of man's desire to separate himself from the authority and direction of God. It is the only time in Scripture where God says, Okay, Satan, you have full authority and reign for a set amount of time. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that he has given power and authority for 40 and two months, three and a half years, time times half a time, different ways that it reads that passage. But what it is saying is that for the first time, the enemy now has power over the earth to do what he sees fit and to... Uh, um, come against God's people, read that in Revelation 12, to make war against them, 
And God kind of steps back and takes a hands-off approach. This is the uniqueness of the Great Tribulation. Will it be bad? Will there be all the other things that we think about? Yes, yes, those will be there. But most all of those things have been there throughout history. We've seen plagues, we've seen pestilence, we've seen famine, we've seen earthquakes, we've seen murders, we've seen all that. But what we haven't seen is a period in which God says, go ahead. This is what you wanted for all this time. Go ahead. And this is why God says that if, if those days hadn't been shortened, if, if I had not put a time limit, a time frame on how long this is going to last, and just let it continue, no flesh should be saved. What I'm trying to show you is that throughout man's history, God has wanted to be in relationship with man. He wants man to worship him of their own free accord. But he will never force man to worship him. Sin continues to drive man to rebellion. So God in his mercy allows man to try it their way in the hopes that they will see the error of their ways and turn back toward God. Revelation 13 and 5 says, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 25, it says, And through his policy all um, through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. Sometimes I think, at least for me, I'll just say for me, sometimes as I read through this stuff, you, you kind of wonder, how could the world, how could even Christians fall prey to the, the lies that this, this person, this antichrist, this enemy is going to tell. How is it that they could allow themselves to accept the mark of the beast when Scripture very clearly tells us that if you do so, that's it. There's no redemption from that. that that's, you're done. How? How could, how could the church be... I, I want to say dumb, but I'm trying to be a little nicer. So how, how could we could be so naive that, that we could allow that to happen? Daniel 8 tells us that through his peace, by peace he shall destroy many. After World War II, mankind looked and said, Ooh, that's, this was bad. We can't ever let this happen again. So countries began to give up their own sovereignty to become part of the United Nations, to allow themselves, their country, to be subject to the criminal courts at The Hague. Because they said, you know what, while we like freedom... We need safety more. We need peace. As you read and study about the things that lead up to the Great Tribulation, that lead up to this time frame, we saw in Matthew 24 that it's a time of unparalleled chaos going on in the world. And imagine now all this war, all this stuff going on, all the nonsense, and someone steps up on the scene and says, I got this. And the Bible talks about him being able to perform miracles and do different things. And now it seems... From, a, from an earthly perspective, that this individual can actually deliver. That he can actually bring peace on earth. There are going to be people falling all over themselves for that. To have peace. We don't care what we have to give up. If you can actually bring, bring peace and safety, we want it. The Bible says, look up, when they say peace and safety, look up for your 
redemption draweth nigh. Sudden destruction will come on those that are, are seeking peace, seeking safety in the world. But it's not true peace. It's not true safety. It's important that you understand what I'm about to say next. Because up to this point, I can understand why some would be listening and be like, this is a depressing message. Like, you're over here talking about Satan having power 40 and 2 months and all the stuff going on. And like, this, this is just depressing. But please hear what I'm about to say next. In John 16, 32, 33, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. God's overcoming of the world doesn't magically stop because Satan's on the scene. God's authority and control over everything that happened doesn't magically diminish or disappear because we've entered into the great tribulation. Jesus says, be of good cheer. I've already overcome the world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3 through 5. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come. And even now it is, all, is it in the world. Oh, already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. But why have you overcome them? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So even when the Antichrist is in the world, still greater is he that is in you and in me than he that is in the world. Matthew 28, 20. 28 comes after 24 last time I checked. In chapter 24 we see Jesus give this entire sermon about the things to come, about the tribulation, about all the stuff to happen, about all the wars, the rumors of wars, all of that stuff. He lists all of that. But now in Matthew 28, he leaves his disciples with this final thought. He says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. He was not just speaking to those disciples at that exact moment. But he was also speaking into a future where his church would be faced with a tribulation that has never been before. And Jesus is saying, yes, I know that. Don't worry, because I'm with you now, and I will be with you even unto the end of the world. Now, let me wrap all of this up by making a few short points. Short points. And... As I was putting all this together, I had so many thoughts. It was, it was, I'm not going to lie, it was a little hard for me because I had so many different things I wanted to address when talking about this. I was trying to figure out how do I keep it in some semblance of order so that I'm not rambling all over the place. And, and the title I chose, right, Call to Revival, Not Survival. And yet I talked about all the bad stuff that's going to happen. But I tell you all of that because I want you and me to be prepared for the great tribulation. 
I think it would be foolish of us to just expect, well, I've got the Holy Ghost. I don't really need to worry about anything else. Just show up in the Great Tribulation and God will do it all and I don't even have to worry about anything. And yet we see time after time the scripture telling us, you need to understand what's about to happen. You need to be prepared. You need to pray for in that hour that you think not. You need to be equipped. We talk about the armor of God. You will never need the armor of God more than you will during that time frame. But guess what? God is still there. God is still in control. God still has all power. He's not called us to a spirit of fear. So if you have fear right now with me talking about this stuff, I challenge you to get into prayer and to ask God to remove the spirit of fear because that's not what he wants for his people. I want you to think about something. In, in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, we find the seven churches. And I, think, I actually mentioned this, I think, last week when we were having our, our talk, Pastor Paul and I. In, in the book of uh, Revelation, chapter 1, we see the seven churches. Interestingly, all seven churches are centered around Turkey. Now, two are technically kind of outside of what is modern-day borders of Turkey. But they're all seated right around Turkey. Why is that significant? Because what does the Bible say about Turkey specifically? That it is the seat of... Of Satan. It's interesting to me that God chooses, chooses to put these seven churches specifically in the enemy's backyard. Why? Because God loves his people and he wants all to be saved. Therefore, it does the church no good to hide off in a little corner all by itself and say, Ooh, they're having it bad over there. We'll just stay way away from all of that stuff. We won't go out into any of that stuff. We won't worry about it. But God's saying, no, you can't fill the Great Commission. You can't complete the ministry of reconciliation that I've given to you, to the church as a whole, if you were hiding and trying to avoid the persecutions of this world. God's saying, no, I'm going to put you right in the middle of it. Why? Because there are people that need to hear the saving message of Christ in the midst of tribulation. We have to be prepared to deliver that message. So let me wrap up here. A couple few points. All right. Number one, during the final plague uh, in the book of Exodus, when the people are about to leave Egypt, judgment was to be pronounced over all of the land of Egypt. Now, it's interesting because if you look back at the earlier plagues, the earlier plagues didn't affect the city of Goshen, which is where God's people was. But in this final plague here, if you read it, it actually says that judgment was to be pronounced over all of the land of Egypt. That would include Goshen, where the children of Israel were. We, of course, know that God instructed the Jews to take the blood of the lamb, of a sacrificed lamb, put it on the doorpost, and cover the entrance to their door. This blood was to come from a lamb that was sacrificed to God, and the meat of this lamb was to be consumed. The people had to have the blood and the body of the lamb applied to their home, or this judgment would also fall on them. We know, of course, that this blood of the Lamb is symbolic of the blood of Christ that he shared or shed on Calvary. We know that the body of the Lamb here is the Word of God. When Jesus talks about at the Last Supper, and he's discussing, here is my body, take and eat, what he literally is trying to get us to understand is that you have to have the word of God 
applied in your heart or you have no part in God's salvation. You need the blood, but you also need the word. It's not an either or, it's a both and. You have to have both. The only way that we will overcome the enemy is stated in the book of Revelation. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Now, many times we look at that phrase, word of their testimony, and we think of it solely as me sharing to another person what God did for me. And it includes that, sure. But the word of their testimony, the testimony that they ultimately keep, is the redemptive act of God. Read the end of Revelation 12. It says specifically, they that have the testimony of Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate testimony that we have Christ. So the only way we overcome is by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We must have his word so ingrained in us that when the enemy comes, we can do what Jesus did in the wilderness. Thus saith the word of the Lord. For it is written. Number two. We must have the Holy Ghost active in our lives. Not just simply we had an encounter with God once upon a time, spoke in tongues, and that's it. We must have the Holy Ghost active in our daily lives. A great example of this is you look at the disciples prior to Luke 24. We see several times where they were following Christ, they were listening to his words, but they didn't really fully have it yet in here. They didn't truly understand it. And so we see time after time Jesus having to correct them and saying, no, you don't understand what I'm talking about. And then tribulation would come and Peter would take his sword and try to chop off the ear of the centurion. And Jesus said, no, you still don't understand. And Jesus prophesied that they would all run away from him. But something changes from these scared, timid disciples pre-Luke 24. Something changes. And at the end of Luke 24, we see Jesus who has been resurrected come to the disciples. And it says that he opened their understanding concerning the scripture. What it means specifically is that they had a spiritual revelation and understanding of what Jesus was doing this whole time. Of what all the Old Testament prophets meant. How that Jesus was not just their rabbi. Jesus was not just their teacher. But he was literally God in the flesh. Only through the Spirit could they have that revelation. And then we see after Acts 1 and 8, where it talks about them receiving power after the Holy Ghost come upon them, we see a whole different set of disciples. When you read through the rest of the book of Acts, we find a Peter. The same Peter who denied Jesus, ran away scared. The same Peter who had problems with his, with his anger and with his emotions. The same Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't find himself even worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Christ. We find a Stephen who was stoned for, for the message that he gave to the people. But when he was about to be stoned, what did he say? He said, Jesus, don't lay this to their charge. Man, how hard would that be? You literally are looking at the people who are trying to kill you, who, who are going to execute you, and what you say to them 
is, Jesus, don't, don't put this to their charge. What changed? What changed in the disciples, what must be present in us, is an understanding that this is not the end. This is not where our journey ends. We don't have hope just in the, the shout that we get to have here at the altar. We don't have hope because we feel the Holy Ghost goosebumps on a Sunday sermon. We are hopeful and confident because we know that Christ has given us a word that we will be with him eternally. That the present sufferings won't even be worthy to be compared to what it will be like to be in the presence of Christ. My destination isn't heaven. It'll be nice. But my destination is the presence of God. Because it's in his presence that I have peace. It's in his presence that everything I need is provided for. What I'm trying to tell you is that there's going to come a time when you're looking at all the things happening around you and wondering how it is that you can survive. How is it we can be like Paul that says, even in my, my present suffering, even in my bondage, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to quit. Why? Because I know that the word of God is still unchained. It's still going to go forth. It is not hindered. The spirit of God is not in bondage like my flesh is. And because of that, I know that I have redemption when all of this is said and done. Many times it's written in scripture, we cannot love our lives even unto death. We have to be willing to lay it all down for Christ because only in that do we have our hope. Number three, the harder the enemy tries to stop the church, the faster the word of God will be spread. When you read the account of Stephen in chapter 7 and even at the end of chapter 6, being stoned, Listen to what happens after he is stoned. After he, he looks at his, his captors and says, Jesus, don't put it on their charge. After it seems like the enemy has defeated Stephen. Acts chapter 8, verse 3 through 4. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hauling men and women, call, uh, uh, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. What the enemy thought he was doing to stop the plan of salvation. He was actually helping speed it up. In his attempt to persecute the church, he actually propagated the gospel to the world. Church, we will face hard times. We've already faced hard times. But we do not have to be afraid because... We know that more, the more the church is persecuted, the more God is going to do. The more he is going to spread his word to the people who need it, who are going to receive it. God is with us. God is for us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? These phrases, these, these scriptures, these passages, these, these church sayings that we have that we quote all the time about you know, I'm, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, things present, things to come. We, we quote these verses, and we should. But we have to make sure that they're not just sayings, that they're not just things we, we, we talk about on a Sunday that we just, you know, quote to someone else. But it has to be in us. 
We have to live it. We have to believe it. Because it's only then that we are ready to face whatever the enemy could possibly even think to throw at us. Let's all stand. I recently watched a documentary about Corey Ten Boom. Um, and she said something in there that I found pretty powerful. It was pretty simple, but very powerful. We know that during that time frame and throughout much of history, it's very custom for ladies to get married very young. 16, that, that was not uncommon through much of history. And I don't know the exact age that this, this story happens, but Corey Timboom, in her own voice in this, in this uh, documentary, shares the story that she was in love with this young man. She was so excited and she knew that this was going to be the one she wanted to marry. She was so in love with this man. This man showed up one day to a little gathering they were at with another woman and introduced her as his fiance. As you can imagine, her heart was broken. She had it all played out in her mind, all planned, that this is the one I'm going to marry. This is how my life's going to look. And in one moment, it all seemed to evaporate. What happens next is what will separate the church from everyone else. She goes up to her room and she's praying and she says, God, and, and I have to paraphrase a little here based on the context of what she's saying, God, my heart's broken, all of this, but if I never find another man to love, you are enough. If I never find a mate, it is enough to have you. How many people do you know in, our, in your own lives who, who you look at who are relationship after relationship after relationship because they're desperately trying to find something that's going to complete them. Desperately looking for something that's going to fulfill this void that they have in their heart. And the only way they think that they can fulfill it is in a relationship with another person. Even another person in church. I'm not saying the other person has to be bad. But what I am trying to tell you is that if you have nothing else in this world, if your family forsakes you, if your spouse leaves you, if your home goes up in a flame of smoke, hey, but you have Jesus, that has to be enough. And when it is enough, there is nothing the enemy can ever do to you to shake your faith, to steal your salvation. This is what it means that I am persuaded that nothing can separate me from the love of God. The enemy already on his own cannot remove you from God's presence. He cannot take away your salvation. But you can. Our heart must be in a place where if all we have is Jesus, that's enough. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you care about your people so much. That you've conquered death, hell, and the grave already. That you alone have the words to eternal life. That while fear is rampant in our nation, in our world, you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of a sound mind. Lord, I pray, strengthen our resolve. Strengthen our will to do what is right before you. Help us to want you and you alone. Help us to understand that it is only through your grace and through your mercy that we are able to make it day to day. 
that we don't have to rely on our own righteousness, on our own strength alone, but that we put on your righteousness. And that like Paul said, when we recognize our frailty, when we recognize our weakness, then are you made strong through us. Lord, I pray that we would keep a mindset of revival no matter what comes. That this world is not our home. And that we are looking forward to the soon and coming King. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.